This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Hello, friend. We have an excellent show for you today. We get to start our first pod class of 2023, Things You May Be Getting Wrong about God. And I am so excited for this podcast. Estimation show, there are more than 200 Christian denominations in the U.S. and a staggering 45,000 globally, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. So chances are there are things you are right about when it comes to God, but there are also things you may be getting wrong. So I am asking you to suspend your judgment in this podcast series, practice humility, listen to a perspective you may differ with. In communication, we always think the best communicators are the best talkers, but it is actually listeners who make better communicators. I love Viral Jesus because we practice listening to people of totally different experiences and backgrounds. And we get to have conversations on this show that may rub against your grain a little bit and other conversations that may solidify what you already think to be true. But either way, being a good Christian communicator is not just about being a great Christian lawyer or preacher or podcaster and saying all the right things. It's also about being a humble listener. Don't forget to take a moment right now and share this episode with a friend. That is literally how we make Jesus go viral is by sharing Christ-centered content and inviting somebody else to practice humility and listen with us. This pod class series is gonna be so great for you to use actually as like a small group discussion if you have a Bible study going on right now. So let's listen together and then you can discuss with a friend or your family or your faith community what you think you may be getting wrong about God and listen humbly to somebody else as they share their experiences. But first, Are you ready for hashtag blessed, where we look at a current topic facing all of us with social media and decide whether it's a hashtag bless or hashtag mess. Today, I am joined again by Brady Shearer. Brady Shearer is the director of Pro Church Tools and church software platform, Nucleus. His work focuses on helping churches navigate the biggest communication shift in 500 years. 
So I was thinking, I wanted to have Brady Shearer back on to talk about what things we need to know before we start building an online platform. Going into that without a plan can be a hashtag mess. So help hashtag bless us, Brady. What are like the three things somebody needs to know? It's January. I know someone's saying new year, new me. I'm going to start my ministry. I'm going to start my nonprofit. What do they need to know as they get online about how to build an online platform? Well, one of the most common New Year's resolutions is, you know, getting a better shape, you know, better fitness, better nutrition. And making improvements in that area of your life is very similar to building an online platform. Uh, because if you've ever attempted to improve your fitness or nutrition, what you have quickly realized is that one great workout will not accomplish very much. Mm. Uh, improving, your pers- uh, improving your physical health is all about the cumulative effort over time. Mm. And building an online platform is the same way. I have been doing this for 10 years now. I have never once had a quote unquote viral post. And I think that's a common misconception a lot of folks have. Going viral is almost certainly something you don't want uh, because what can happen is it can kind of like pigeonhole you into like, oh, you went viral for this one thing. This is who you are. And so building an online platform, the first thing you need to know is that it's going to take time. We always talked about like, okay, what are we trying to accomplish for this year? But I have a saying that's written on my wall that I'm looking at right now that says most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Mm. If you want to build something meaningful, you kind of have to like be in it for the long haul and think about the cumulative effort over time. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be picking a niche to begin with. Uh, Basically, one specialty that you have expertise or experience in that people would come to you and, and care to learn about. So for me, 10 years ago, I started just teaching churches about video announcements. So think mm. about how hyper-focused that niche is. We're talking about Christian world, sure, but only people that serve and work in churches, and then only folks that are making video announcements. Not not announcements, video announcements And only. 10 years ago. Exactly. Right. So that's what I started on. So when you typed in video announcements, well, no one else was talking about it. You found me. And mm-hmm. as I built an audience from there, I expanded. Okay, maybe we can talk about video production in church as a whole. Well, let's talk about all the digital media. Let's talk about communications. You start with that niche and then you broaden from there. And then third thing to consider is that people are going to come for your content. They're going to stay for your character. And when I say character, I don't necessarily mean integrity. I mean the personality that you inject into mm. your, your content. I find for me, at least, the people that I've been listening to for many, many years are the people that I first got connected to because they were speaking on something. They had expertise that I needed. But I've stuck around because I feel like I know them. You know, if you listen yeah. to podcasts, you probably can relate to that. You're like, oh, yeah, these are my friends. I've had people come up to me at conferences in person. Be like, I feel like we're like, like I know you. Like, we're friends. I'm like, yeah, right. that's exactly what the podcast experience can give you. The thing is, at least for me, when I listen to someone for their expertise, after a couple of years, maybe even one year, they've said pretty much all they have to say about that topic. <laughs> and sometimes you can cycle through a podcast and that's a natural, like good thing. Uh, the people that I've stuck around and listened to for the long haul though, are the ones that I came for the content, stayed for the character because they have fun personalities. I love that. So three things to help make this a hashtag bless as you start your new year and want to start building your online presence. Number one, you said making sure that we have commitment, right? We keep putting content out. Number two, find your niche. And number three, it's not just content, y'all. It's also character. Brady Shearer, always a pleasure to have you on. If somebody wants to go learn more from you, where can they go? 
Sure. So I said we, we help churches. It's New Year. We've released uh, what, we've, what we're calling this year the one-page church social media plan. Social is complex. We've distilled it all to one page, Heather. You can find that at churchsocialmediaplan.com. It's a free download. We just need your email. And it has a full roughly hour workshop with me that's also free, basically sharing everything that uh, we've been learning and experiencing on social media in the context of church. So churchsocialmediaplan.com. Using social media without a plan to build your platform. Is that a hashtag blessed or a hashtag mess? You decide. If you want to respond to our hashtag blessed segment today, if you have your thoughts on this topic, we would love to hear from you. Just type into your search bar, whether on Instagram or Twitter, type in at viral Jesus pod, and then just put a hashtag blast on the end of whatever your comment is, and we will see it. We would love to enter the chat with you. Well, I hope you have your pen or your notes app open in your phone because, listen, this episode's going to go hard. (laughs) We are going hard on episode one of our pod class journey. I brought in one of my favorite public thought leaders, Beth Allison Barr. Beth Allison Barr is associate professor of history and associate dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where she specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. She is also the best-selling author of the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And I don't know, Beth thinks that maybe there might be a few things that you could be getting wrong about how God sees women. So I always like to open the show by first going through someone's social media and finding a post that really resonates with me and asking them to expand on it. For you, I found this quote of yours. Actually, you hadn't tweeted it. I think somebody else tweeted it, Um, but it was one of your quotes from your book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And it, it says this, patriarchy may be a part of Christian history, but that doesn't make it Christian. Our pod class right now is, what might I be getting wrong about God? So tell us, what do you mean when you say that? Patriarchy might not be Christian? What? Yes. No. So that actually, that quote came out of somewhat exasperation because people all the time would come to me and say, well, of course women can't lead because women haven't led. And, you know, we know this, we know like in the medieval era, it's like, well, of course women, you know, can't be preachers today. They couldn't be priests in the medieval Catholic world. Mm. And my response to that was just because there were restrictions against women that were based upon culture in the past doesn't mean that those are things that God wanted us to do. (laughs) You know, it's sort of like Mm. just because bad things have been done doesn't mean that they're good things to continue doing in the future. So this logic always frustrated me um, that, you know, Mm. that just because the church has behaved badly in the past means that we should continue to behave badly in the future. And so that quote came out of me trying to impress upon folk that just because this is here doesn't mean that it should be here, Mm. which is essentially what my book is about, is about the fact that even though we have done this, it doesn't mean that we should be doing it. And let me tell you why. 
So tell us why. <laughs> I'm going to ask you this, okay? What do you think we may, even right now, be getting wrong about God when it comes to women? Oh, my gosh. There's so much um, that we are getting wrong about God when it comes to women. I think one of the big things is that when we think about God and women, we think about it in terms of hierarchy. Um, when we mm. think about what God wants women to do, we always think about it in terms of their relationship to men. And that yeah. God, you know, that for some reason, when God sees women, he sees women through the lens of male authority. And, and this completely misses who God is. I mean, I think about, we had our small group just the other night and our children's minister was reading a section from the Jesus story Bible, which I love that. I used it with both my kids, such a beautiful, beautiful vision, you know, translated for small children. And one of the things that she was, you know, was reading was the story in Genesis where God created, um, humanity. And he looked at both men and women and he said, you right. are good. You are good. Not you are good together, but you are also good separate, you know, these two distinct beings. Um, and he wasn't looking at Eve through the lens of Adam. Um, he pulled leave Eve out of Adam and made us separate. And so it's just mm. always, you know, I, I don't know why we have this tendency that when we think about women, we think about us as conditional beings, um, that we are dependent upon, you know, first men and then God. And this mm. is, so this, and we argue that we don't, we argue that women come before God as equal, um, but our actions don't speak to that. And right. the way that we even write Bible studies for women doesn't speak to that. It's, it's, they're all about how we relate to men and relate to our families instead of how we relate to God. Uh, so that's, I, I think that's one of the things I think we see women through the lens of men. And this is called the androcentric gaze. Um, mm. And I think uh, Christians today are just as guilty of it as Christians in the past. So that's one thing. I could talk all sorts of things that I think, but that's a big one. <laughs> Walk me through, Beth Allison, how you became to be the author of The Making yeah. of Biblical Womanhood. Walk me through, before we even get to the book, just tell me about your own journey, maybe even finding yourself before God as a whole person. Oh gosh. Right? Because you're also a pastor's wife. I am wife, a pastor's wife. I have been as well. I understand the identity that comes with that, but also like God has, and clearly has shown he has something for you. Right. So walk us through that kind of transformational experience in your life. And was there scary moment? What was it like on your marriage? Like oh, yeah. the backdrop here. Yeah. So, you know, I always tell folk that the making of biblical womanhood is my whole life. It really is. Mm. It's not a book I ever intended to write. It's not a book I planned to write until almost the moment that I signed the contract. But it really walks through my entire journey um, to this point. And what, when I you know, when I began this journey, it began when I went to graduate school um, in 1997. I hate to say how old I am, but my birthday was yesterday <laughs> and I just can't, you know, Happy there birthday. we are, there we are. But when I started, I started a medieval history women's studies program. I'd been married for 10 days. 
<laughs> you know, we were oh, so wow. young. I've been married for 10 days. And my husband was starting seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Paige Patterson was president there. And so from mm. the very beginning of our marriage, I had the juxtaposition of these two worlds of this historical world, which was not Christian at all, but yet was mm. also walking me through history in a way that I'd never seen it before. And then still this very rigid uh, shift in modern evangelicalism in which women were being pushed out of even the roles that they had been able to hold and sort of this this idea mm-hmm. that women belong very clearly underneath uh, male authority and that that is their primary calling within the church. Um, this is where we see that type of understanding is becoming um, the norm, at least in my Southern conservative evangelical world. Um, so gotcha. there was this weird tension And what's interesting is it wasn't really a tension in my marriage. Um, My husband and I, you know, very early on, I I would say at best we were soft complementarian if I can, I wouldn't ever use that term then, but at best that's kind of what we were um, then. And I totally thought biblical womanhood was from God. But at the same time, I had never lived with men who tried to, well, mostly had it with men who tried to enforce it in that very rigid way. It's only Mm. a couple of exceptions in my life, which I talk about in the book. But nonetheless, I saw it as part of God's plan, but I also began to see with history how much what the church was doing in trying to reinforce these very rigid gender roles, how it looked no different than anything that was happening in the ancient world, in the medieval world. You know, it all looked the same. And the ancient world was not justifying it from a Christian standpoint. They were justifying Mm. it from a standpoint that women were made inferior to men. And I began to see how similar the rhetoric was. Um, and that is what really, I think that's what started my journey. And I talked about it with my husband. I mean, we had all sorts of conversations. I mean, we were both in graduate school. Um, he was beginning his role as a pastor, very tiny little church, one of those tiny little churches that it doesn't really matter if you are a male or female in that church. We need everybody to serve. (laughs) All hands on deck. deck. So, you know, and that's a very different sort of it. It's like, if you're a Christian and you are called by God, and you know you are yes please we will use you i think that's right. paul's practical theology it's yes you can be used by god i'm going to send you to be used by god so we were working from that very practical um type of philosophy right. um and at the same time we were seeing this more rigid gender roles being imposed at southeastern and true confession my husband actually stopped going to chapel <laughs> <laughs> when he was there because he just couldn't, he, mm. he was just, there was only so much he could take at sort of some of this. And, it, and, and so we already began to see this inconsistency between the rhetoric about women that was beginning to be reinforced mm. within evangelical churches and the inconsistency of that with the gospel. And then also how familiar that was with the history I was studying. Mm. And it, was a long journey for us, but I tell the story when I was, um, you know, it was really actually not all that long ago. It was around 2012, 2013, when we stood in the, in our kitchen and my husband walked in and I said, I do not believe in, um, in Christian patriarchy anymore. I do not believe in complementarianism. I do not believe in male headship. I think we have Mm. missed God. And what he did is he just said, okay, Mm. 
And I mean, it was just really, it was this moment for both of us because he knew where I stood. He wasn't with me yet, but he was not going to tell me I was wrong. Mm -hmm. He was going to think about it. And and he did. Actually, I remember he took Philip mm-hmm. Payne's book, One in Christ, which was one that I had, and I, he took it and started reading. And so he started doing mm-hmm. his homework to see and then eventually ended up on the same page as me. I think the thing that really got to both of us is watching the impact of these sort of artificial gender roles that we were being encouraged to enforce with our teenagers that we worked with. And we saw the impact that that had on those Mm. young women who were clearly being called by God to be leaders and us being required to try to diminish that within them, to try to tell them that that really wasn't their calling. And even, and to try to encourage young men who that was not their calling. I mean, you could already see that was, they had no, to try to tell them that they should be more like this aggressive masculinity. And that was really when we begin to see the artificiality Mm. of these types of roles, um, that they were something we were constructing and imposing on people instead of letting people be who God made them be and letting God use them in the way God created them. Talk to us a little bit about the role some women played in the early church, which you describe in your book. Tell us what Somebody listening right now may have, they just say, you know what? Women have just never done any major contribution. I remember having a student say that (laughs) um, to me. Talk to us. How would you respond to somebody who says something like that? So I've had people say that to me many times. I have students in my classes. In fact, the number one thing students say to me after they get through a first couple of weeks of my classes is they're like, why didn't anyone ever tell me this about women before? And what do you teach? Tell us what you teach too. I just want to make sure everybody knows. um, I teach, I'm a medieval historian and I teach medieval history and I teach women's history at Baylor University. I also teach graduate students. So I teach courses on women in Europe from the ancient world through the middle ages and then from the middle ages through suffrage. Um, I teach ancient history and early medieval history, high middle ages, um, I also teach graduate seminars on medieval sermons and women and religion. So all of those types of things. It's a lot of fun. I just want to say it's so clear throughout the entire book, but the hand of God over you to write this book, it is, I think, rare that somebody so deeply fits (laughs) with what they're teaching about and in a way, Beth Allison, where you weren't ever... um, like it wasn't from this outsider perspective, right? Because you're like, this is my culture right. too. Yeah. And here's how it impacted me in real ways. So I just want to say that to anybody who hasn't read it yet. You have to read this book because you were just, I mean, it's just so clear that God, what does it say in scripture? He makes a crooked path. Yes. Like your path was clearly designed to write this book. You know, that's actually what convinced me. I mean, it was this really strange, I remember when I first started the conversation with Brazos and they were the ones who approached me about it. And I remember- I didn't know that. So they contacted you and said, would you consider this? Yes, that's exactly right. I hadn't ever, you know, people come to me now and they're like, how do you go through like the book proposal process? And I'm like, y'all, <laughs> I don't okay. know. I have to say this. Everybody knows. I've never done that. We, Karen Swallow Pryor <laughs> on the podcast says, 
a calling comes from the outside. And so again, in your situation, <laughs> quite literally, you were called <laughs> to write the book. I tell people all the time, I am a medieval historian. You know, my first book is about to come out in paperback. And my husband is laughing because he's like, all these people are like, oh, I want to read it. And Jeb's, he's like, do they know <laughs> that that is your, you know, that is your medieval scholarship? It is not right. your writing and the making of biblical women. you are also <laughs> a fantastic writer. Chapter <gasps> one, I was just sobbing oh. reading this book because it so deeply felt familiar. I'm sure yes. you hear that from women all the time who went through it, but it just, for me, I so deeply felt it, it, yeah. it revealed pain in me. I didn't even know I had, well, we talked about this before well, we got sorry. on the call yeah. because I always just say, it's fine. I want to be positive. I want to be the fine girl. Yeah. I don't want to be a problem for anyone. And just reading this book, I just started sobbing because I realized, oh, I carry a lot of baggage from this that I was not letting myself acknowledge. So back to the original yes. question, there's so many yeah. things I want to talk to you about, <laughs> but Tell us, what would you say to somebody who says, well, women really haven't played any type of role in church history? I would say it's not that women haven't played a role. It's that we have been taught not to see women. And yes. I often go back to the very first, you know, I've been using this story so much lately, and it's the story of Hagar in Genesis 16. Mm. And Hagar is the first person in the Bible to name God. She's a woman. Mm. She's a slave girl. She is not, you know, she's what you would think would be one of the least important people in the story. Um, she's right. actually not even supposed to be in the story because she's there because right. Abraham and Sarah, they messed up. And so she's uh -huh. there. But she, even in the midst of all of that, God comes to her and she says, you are a God who sees. Mm -hmm. And it is just, you know, it is just remarkable to me that the so early on in the story of God reaching down to humanity, the first two names, this really in mm -hmm. scene is a nobody woman who has been, um, you know, raped and then mistreated. Mm -hmm. And she is, and God, and she says, you see me, God. And I think that, you know, if we follow that thread, God sees women. He sees yeah. them throughout the Bible. And, um, you know, and it's just that we aren't seeing them. So take, for example, everybody likes to quote First Timothy at me and say, you know, God clearly says women can't be elders, can't be preachers, whatever. And, uh, you know, aside from the fact that all of those words that we've even used, we've given them modern connotations that they didn't have in the ancient world. You know, Can I say this? I have to say this, Allison, because here's my thing. We constantly say, well, I have a very high view of scripture. And my thing is all of us are quoting Jesus speaking a language he never spoke. English is not a good language to translate biblical languages into. Um, it's mm. one of the most difficult. I mean, anybody who has tried to learn English from outside knows how difficult a language it is, especially when it comes to things like gender. We do not have a good word, a good gender inclusive word. I mean, you know, I live in the South where we've created one, y'all. Y'all is wonderful. Right. Um, but it's right. not you know, we have only plural pronouns, they, that, you know, include, that are really sort of this gender inclusive word. So it's a poor language anyway. And then we're trying to, and then we try to, you know, we quote it in a way and say, like for saying there's no, there's no female pronouns when God describes who's to be an elder. It's all men. And I'm like, well, you know, actually it's not. Those are gender neutral pronouns. Um, we miss that too. But at the same time, even if 
that entire passage in Timothy saying, you know, he uh, what the characteristics of an elder are to be, even if those were all masculine, I would still pause because what do we do with Romans 16? And this is it. Whenever people come to me and are like, well, women can't lead in, in the church. Uh, you know, how do we get around these, these scriptures that say women be silent? You know, first Corinthians 14, um, women cannot, you know, be an authority over men. Timothy, how, wh- how do we get around these? And I say, well, we don't ignore them, but mm-hmm. we have to put them in context. Right. So let's go and read Romans 16 and then let's talk about what may be, see if that gives us um, some idea. And of course, what we find in Romans 16 is we find women being uh, leaders, recognized as leaders in all of the major roles in the early mm-hmm. church, you know, apostle, deacon, teacher, house church leader. Those are the major roles in the early church. And women in Romans 16 are in all of them. In fact, more women in Romans 16 are identified by their ministry positions than men are in Romans 16. Mm. And so just that, I found that just taking people back to the Bible and saying, let's look at it, not add anything to it, not try to say these verses aren't in there, not do any of that. Let's just look and see what it says. And what we find is that it has to be more complicated than women be silent. Women do not hold authority over men because women in the Bible are holding authority over men. Right. So we cannot, you cannot say this is it if you are faithful to the Bible. That's not all there is. So that's the first thing I would say. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community. You partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Let's go a little bit further yeah. on that. How do you think we've misunderstood Paul? I mean, Paul can, I mean, depending on what circle you're in, and I actually really like the writings of Paul. Yes, um, so do I. I. One of my favorite books actually is Paul Behaving Badly. And it's kind of, it's uh, Brandon J. O'Brien and talking yeah. about things we get wrong, right, with Paul. Like it, even the thing on um, be silent. And he says, or, or women should learn in silence. And he says, we miss the beginning of the sentence, which is women should learn. Yes, that that is a radical reformation to the time that Paul is actually in. And so if you heard it in context at the time, they'd be like, what is Paul doing? What do you mean? 
women should learn. But of course, when we read that today, we say silence. That's what we, that's what we on. focus on. Which at least, how about you? In most of my classes, they learn from me in silence anyway. That's <laughs> part of how we learn is I listen to whoever's talking. Uh, but so tell me, what do you think are some of the things we've gotten wrong about Paul? Oh, gosh. Um, well, of course, that's one of the main things. I think what we have done. So, you know, if you read all of Paul, um, if you read all of his letters and you think about you know, taking it all together. I joke th- with people that if I had decided to become a theologian, I think I would have been a systematic theologian because I like mm-hmm. to see overarching patterns and how mm-hmm. things kind of fit together. And so if we look and see what Paul is doing, Paul is going to individual churches that he has some sort of connection with, and he is identifying challenges that they have and identifying strengths that they have. And he is encouraging them to build on the strengths they have, and then trying to help resolve some of the problems and the challenges that they have. So every letter, while it does have implications for us today, and there are lessons that we can pull from it today, they were also written to a very particular context. (laughs) Right. And we cannot take out what Paul is saying to one church and saying this applies to every church is in exactly the same way. Because that is taking Paul out of context. And and that's what we've done. Uh, We've taken a handful of verses that we have lifted from all of these different letters written to different churches for different reasons, pulled them all together into what we consider to be a narrative about women. And then we have gone back to the Old Testament and tried to read the Old Testament as well as everything else in the Bible through the lens of a handful of verses by Paul, mm-hmm. written in letters to individual churches. And oh, of course, always ignoring Paul. And yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because it doesn't fit the no. narrative. Yeah. Talk to us about some of the women in medieval church oh, history. Yeah. Let, you go, You have so many examples in the book. And, and I just want anybody listening to know if you go through the book, again, she truly brings her scholarship into it. But um, tell us about somebody that you wish more people about. Oh gosh. So, you know, I have a lot of women in there, but I had a lot of women cut. And okay. some of those women that I got cut out was really sad to me. One of them is Catherine of Siena, um, who was at the very end of, you know, again, at the end of the medieval um, era. And she is, um, she becomes a preacher, um, travels mm-hmm. around preaching. Um, she also actually ends up at the papal court and spends a great deal of her effort teaching essentially the Pope. And and he listens to her. He actually ends up doing what she tells him to do, saying that this is what God, you know, you are doing the wrong thing. He's actually, it's during the time of Avignon Papacy, and he's in France instead of in Rome. And she goes to him and she says, you are in the wrong place. And you need to mm. be back home, you know, where the seat of your position is. He's, you know, what are you doing in France? You need to be back. And so mm. he listens to her. I mean, if we think about right. this, um, the most significant position in the Western church and his counselor, his advisor is a woman. And she's not even actually a full, she's what we call a tertiary, which means that she is associated with a monastic group, but she has not taken full monastic Mm. vows. So it's this woman who's not a full monastic, who yet is this preacher and teacher who men are listening to and writing to and doing what she says. And, you know, so when people come to me and say, you know, women in the past didn't do any of these things, and I'm like, 
have you read any medieval history? <laughs> and we're all like, no, just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we need to take your class. <laughs> it's just super fun. Um, you know, I always tell people it's not that women in the medieval period didn't suffer from patriarchy because they did. But yet at the same time, God still used them in these really incredible and mighty ways. And they were seen as authoritative and as somebody mm. that even male leaders should listen to. I mean, you know, I talk about Marjorie Kemp in the book. I love Marjorie Kemp. Some people hate Marjorie Kemp. I tell people that I love Marjorie Kemp as a historian. I would not want to sit next to her during a church service because gotcha. she was a very wild woman. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I would not have wanted to sit next to her. But nonetheless, even she, I mean, it's just remarkable that she never gets tried for heresy she is a street preacher is what she mm. is. She is doing the job of a priest and they call her on it. You know, she gets called before different, you know, people who are like, oh my gosh, what is this woman doing? And every time they can't find anything wrong with her because mm. she's doing, and they send her back out and they just say, fine, just go keep doing what, you know, you leave, you can keep doing this. And so she spends her entire life walking around, preaching, traveling to the Holy Land, um, praying for people and with people and learning about God and teaching that knowledge to other people. I mean, that's what she spends her life doing. Once again, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. It's not that women were not leaders right. in the same way as men in the biblical world and even in church history. It's that we have been taught not to see them in that way. And do you have examples of men maybe who were supportive of- Oh female yes leadership and preaching and oh gosh yeah yeah so you know if you even think about um like marjorie kemp it was local priests who wrote her story down Mm. and who she actually had to go because she was illiterate in the sense that she couldn't write. Whether that meant she probably couldn't read. We know it's a very oral culture, but uh, but who knows? I mean, she obviously worked really hard at learning what she could, but it was men who wrote down her story. And it was mm. men who did not portray her as being a heretic. I mean, they mm. had every opportunity. If you have these male priests who are like, whoa, you know, here's this woman. We don't want people to do what she's doing. So we're going to portray her in a poor life. They didn't. They portrayed mm. her the way that we have her today as this woman who was clearly seeking God, had knowledge of God, had a very close relationship with God, and was exercising authority. And that's the way male clerics portrayed her. In fact, every female story that we have is told through a male scribe in wow. the medieval world, which means that all of these very significant women um, who were preachers and teachers and leaders in the medieval world were told, their story was told by men. But the story that they came through as preachers, that mm -hmm. was not something that these men erased. And so, I mean, it tells us that this was okay with them, that they mm -hmm. understood that God was calling these women and was using these women. And we can even think, you know, this goes all the way up to the papacy. Because uh, we have letters from women. In fact, you can go, there's a website that actually collects all of the letters we have from women in the medieval world. And one of the things you will notice is how many of these medieval religious women are writing to the Pope and telling him what to do. 
mm-hmm. and um, and writing to other male, you know, ecclesiastical figures, and that they're writing to these women and saying, "Can you give me advice on this? Because we respect you as you know somebody who God clearly is put in this position." And so, every female voice we have in the medieval world is pretty much there because she was supported by a male voice who put her forward. It's so important, I think, to talk about those things. Often, like there's this tension that rises for whatever reason, anytime we talk about female leadership, because I think people think that it somehow has to be pitted against male leadership as if power in the gospel can't be shared to the glory of God, right? Um, So I think it's important to mention those things, but the aftermath for you of this book, what has that looked like? (laughs) How Um, has writing this book and being faithful to this call, which was literally a call, how has this impacted your life? So before that, I do have to say that I'm writing my next book project. Yeah. And one of my early chapters is called Together for the Gospel, which clearly I pulled from the gospel sort of thing, Gospel Coalition, but it's about men and women in the early medieval world. Working together. And what's the title of that book? Becoming the Pastor's Wife. So that's the next one. But it's not just about the pastor's wife. It's the history of how we got to the pastor's wife and how that's connected to female ordination. We will absolutely have a part two to this conversation then when that book comes out. I can't yeah, wait. But, um, but the making of biblical womanhood, is it, it has changed my life in really significant ways. I was just listening to Beth Moore on um, Saved by the City podcast. Um, uh-huh. And you know she said, talked in there about that one doesn't, thrive in the spotlight, one survives in the spotlight. And that really resonates with me um, because I'm an introvert. I'm Mm. very comfortable as a medieval historian in the classroom, Um, very comfortable with my students. I am not comfortable out in front. I'm not. I am not an extrovert person. Mm -hmm. And so this has been a really hard journey for me because I spend a whole lot of my time in situations I am not comfortable in. And I Mm. often, I'm like, God, I did not ask for this. I did not, you know, I would have been happy the rest of my life just writing books on medieval history. But at the same time, I see the good that is coming from this. I see, Mm. you know, the women who write to me all the time, all over the world, just say thank you. And every single one of those, you know, I'm like, this spurs me forward to keep doing what I'm doing because women have been so harmed. And even men, men have been harmed too, but women and men have been so harmed by a teaching that has shamed us and that has pushed, uh, that has kept us from using the gifts that God called us to and has harmed Mm. the spread of the gospel. You know, so that encourages me to keep going on. Um, However, in the beginning, when the book first came out, I mean, I really was terrified. Did you have any idea that it was going to be <laughs> quite so popular? So when I wrote the book, I was a dean at Baylor. Okay. That's an interesting story, too. I never thought I'd be a dean either. And so my life from eight to five was being a full-time academic administrator. And I managed Mm. to write this book on the in-between time and because I had a very generous dean over me, my boss, and he gave me time off to help write it. But I still remember the day that I was in a meeting. I have no idea what the meeting was at this point, but it was something and I was in there and I get an email from NPR and, (laughs) and, you know, and I'm like, you know, and it says inviting me to be on morning edition. And I was like, 
And then like literally, like literally one or two minutes later, a text message comes through from Eliza Griswold DMing me saying that the New Yorker wants to come down and interview me. <laughs> and I got out of that meeting and I just went and sat in the, my boss's office, Larry Lyon, Dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University. And I just stared at him and I said, Larry, I said, I don't, this, I'm really afraid about what's going to happen. Mm. I was just like, this is incredible. But I was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and it really was, it was this moment of terror for me um, because I was like, I don't know how to do this. I'm very grateful. On the one hand, I'm very grateful that whatever magic happened behind the scene, that my book got out there for people to hear this. I am so grateful and I don't take it for granted. I know it was nothing that I did to do this. I know this was totally, right. you know, I mean, it's totally God that got this message out there. Um, so I never want to be ungrateful for that, but it totally pulled the rug out from under me. And it took me a long time to kind of climb back out of that. You know, I'm an academic, so I'm prepared for people to argue with me and for people to right. push back and be like, oh, I don't think about that. You know, have you read this? Or you didn't quote any of my scholarship right. and it completely, you know, and all we do that all the time. I was right. not prepared for the personal text, for the level mm -hmm. of angry hostility that I got, the people trying to attack me as a scholar and say that I wasn't a good scholar. I mean, I was like, what is this? Um, you can disagree mm -hmm. with me, right? but that doesn't mean I'm not a good scholar. And so, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm also a dean at Baylor, but okay, each person <laughs> can have their own I'm opinion. Like, whatever, <laughs> you know. Kevin, it's, it's fine. Well, it was just, you know, he wasn't the only one. It was really bad for a while. And I spent a lot of my days just kind of in sort of this numb shock. I'll just be mm -hmm. honest about that. Um, I was just, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I don't really know how to deal with it. But people are reading this book and it seems to be working. So I've just got to push forward. And there are there are days I don't remember very much of what was going on because I really did. I just kind of lived in this wow. sort of numb shock for a while. Um, and it, it took a while for me to kind of get through that. I have to ask you this question yeah. because just the way culture has played out, it's not often women in Christianity who are face forward and getting so yeah. attacked. And so when it happens, I, I think it leaves men who are attached to that woman. Like, how do I process yeah. this? You know, because I just know for myself, like my husband can be, it's so hard for him to see somebody be mean to me. What was this like for your husband? to watch other men because it was often, yeah. I mean, I, you had critique from women too, but I saw so many men. And if, those of you who are listening, who aren't on Twitter, you really <laughs> had to see the reaction that she was getting on Twitter. And it was actually one of the reasons too, a, a compilation of things that I just said, I need to step out of this space because it was just so much toxic it's hard. It's a hard energy. Space. That I couldn't even watch. I remember DMing you at one point in it and just being like, I can't even watch this anymore because it's... Yeah. It was that it, bad. It was. There were moments that it was it was really bad. And I mean, but it was people like you who DM'd me behind the scenes. I, I got so many from so many people who I'd never met before, who I never thought would be DMing me. 
just hang in there was what a lot of people and are, I'm praying for you. And, yeah. and those things just really, really helped because it helped me realize that what was happening wasn't normal <laughs> and wasn't right. good. That it wasn't just me. It wasn't me being sensitive. It wasn't me being, you no. know, that this was really, there was an attack going on. And so it helped to normalize mm-hmm. that for me. And so that was really helpful because I was like, okay, so this isn't. Um, so my husband is a really down to earth, very practical, both of us together. We actually are not real dramatic people. We're actually pretty level headed okay. sort of folk. So when one of us gets really upset about something, it's, really something to get upset about. I would send Mm -hmm. him like, I still do this. Like when I get a, (laughs) when I get a really, you know, somebody who sends me this really unreasonable sort of thing, I send it to him and I just say, tell me how to respond. I was like, I don't know how to respond. So what people don't know is that a lot of my responses is actually my husband. <laughs> and, he, and that makes sense. Because for you, it was you were in this emotional place and he was able to... And he just went through and he was just like, say this, you know, put through. Uh-huh. And um, and even the most recent one to the one that Brad Green recently did, the last one, the one that just came out, keep getting the TGC and the CBMW publications confused. But anyway, whichever one it just recently came out in, you know, my husband wrote and I put it on Instagram and I was like, <laughs> you know, honey, everybody's quoting you. <laughs> You are brilliant. Thank you for making me look good in this moment. (laughs) I was just like, you know, but I mean, it just, it helps. So he, he does a lot of that you know, he'll help me with that. And I, I do a lot of things. I'm like, I, don't, I was like, should I respond to this? And most of the time he's like, no, why? He's like, don't worry right. about it. Just let that one go. And so it's helpful. He does that. I don't know if he's ever gotten really angry. I think he's, you know, he knows these guys. I mean, he knows this world oh, too. I mean, he, not personally, right, he doesn't know. Them. Right. I mean, he knows a lot. He knows some of them personally, but you know, he knows why they're doing this. And so, I mean, he's just like, well, of course they have to say that, you know, he's just like, there's not. So it kind of helps with that because it's, um, he kind of gives me that perspective on what's happening on what's happening with him. The thing that got him was, I'll tell you the story. So last fall, I was going to Notre Dame to talk at Notre Dame and, um, I was really excited about it because it was a really fun invitation to get to go. And I was presenting on actually medieval scholarship connected to my book. And so that was a lot of fun too. The day before I left was the day that the CBMW wrote that fundraising letter where they used me and Kristen to try to, and what they did in that is they attacked my church, Um, my tiny little church that somewhere, somebody on the website at one point in its history had used the word God self my husband and I didn't even know it was on the website. Not that I would right. have had a problem with it, but we didn't even know it was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just crazy. And so they used this to attack our church. And it was a time when we were going through, we were really struggling. Everything was hard. And that night, my husband and I just sat and I just cried. I was like, I was like, I don't think we can keep doing this. And my husband was like, I don't know if mm-hmm. we can either. And somebody, I reached out to somebody on Twitter and I said, will you just pray for us? The next morning, when I was at the airport, my husband texts me and he says, Beth, people have started giving online to our church. And he was like, do you know what's going on? And I went and got on Twitter and I found out that people had put out our online giving function at our church. Wow. And I mean, the it was incredible, not just the money, but the messages that they were sending us. 
all day long. It just kept getting higher and higher and the, and what people were telling us, just the encouragement. And that turned us around. <laughs> what the devil tried to do for evil, God will turn the curse into a blessing. It was incredible. And my husband was even so emotional. You know, what we did at church is he printed every single message that people sent us and we taped mm. them all around the inside of our mm. church for everybody to see. And, you know, it was like God, once again, you know, he keeps stepping in whenever yes. I feel like I can't keep going. And that was a moment where both my husband and I felt like we couldn't keep going. And God just made it so clear that we were to keep going. And it was just incredible and amazing. And um, and also because it was directly linked, you know, to us having sort of that breakdown the night before. Right. And prayer. And then the next morning, it was just transformed. Our tagline this season for Viral Jesus is, we want to encourage people to enter the chat because yeah. social media has so many negatives around it, which we've talked mm -hmm. about. But at Viral Jesus, we want to encourage people to take ownership of how they are communicating yes. both online and off. How do you choose to be a redemptive oh, voice of the online space? That's a really good, I'm glad you asked that. So um, learning to navigate social media, you have to learn how to do it. This is not mm. something I knew how to do when I got into this space. It is not something that I will say I have always done well, but I have learned to do better and I have learned mm. what matters. And so one of the things that I have really tried to do to be a redemptive you know, voice in this space is to, um, is to use whatever voice I have to lift up other people. So mm. I work really hard to lift up other voices, to put out other people, to put out my students, to put out you know, anyone yeah. else who is doing to try to lift them up to help get the good work and the good voices that are out there. Um, I also have tried and I very like I very rarely will quote tweet anybody a negative, you know, sort of those quote tweets that drive people to go right. and start attacking frenzy on somebody else. I really try not to do that at all because there's nothing constructive in that. All it right. does is it drives a bunch of people to that spot to get angry about that thing. Mm -hmm. And it usually doesn't, I, I don't know, I don't see much good coming out of it. You know, uh, sometimes you do have to call attention to really bad theology that somebody put out that's based upon. But what I usually do is I don't actually use their name or quote the thing. You know, I'll just say, hey, for those of you who read this, this is what happened. This is something mm -hmm. else. This is why this is not so great. Go learn here. So I've tried to do things like that. Um, I've tried not to lose my temper. In fact, I just told somebody that I've lost my temper on Twitter five times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting and I am keeping track. I am. And um, try to not tweet when I'm angry. You know, that sort mm. of impulse to go and put it out there because I know that, you know, I know that people are seeing what I'm doing. And it's really important for me to be seen as somebody with integrity, to be seen as somebody who right. does display um, the fruits of the spirit online, um, even in difficult circumstances. Mm. Um, so I try to remember that, that even if I don't want to be seen, I am seen. And I've got to be right. careful with what I do. Um, so I, I'm not always successful in that. Um, but I do always try to apologize um, if I did something poorly. So, you know, it's, it's a hard space, but it is a space 
that elevates voices that might not otherwise be heard. Yes. And that's one of the reasons I stay in that space. Mm-hmm. Beth Allison Barr is the author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. You can order it right now. I invite you to pause this podcast, open <laughs> up whatever your favorite app is that you get your books from and order this book. It was honestly, I am not just saying this because I'm looking you at looking at your face. It was a fantastic book. And we can't wait for your next one. Thank you so much for joining us. So what can we learn from our conversation with Beth Allison Barr? Number one, Beth says that when we think about God's relationship toward women, we tend to only think through the lens of hierarchy. And she believes this completely misses who God is. Number two, Beth says we should not see women as conditional beings. God doesn't just see women through the lens of men. God sees women. Number three, read Romans 16 today. Take in texts where we see women recognized as leaders by the Apostle Paul in their roles in the early church. More women in Romans 16 are identified by their ministry positions than men are in Romans 16. Beth says, stay with the Bible. Don't stop reading. Wrestle with it. Read it. And you can also buy books like The Making of Biblical Womanhood if you are open to challenging some of your previously held conceptions. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, we will sit down with Joel Mutamale. Joel serves as the director of theology and research for Proverbs 31 Ministries and Lisa Turkers. I love Joel. He is seriously one of my favorite online follows when I'm looking for theology discourse. Please find him on Instagram before you even tune in next week to our second pod class because Joel is incredible and I know how much you'll enjoy learning from him. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip